You're listening to Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, with host John Hansen. Today's show is sponsored by Leonard Trial Lawyers, Heggie Walkner Law, and Kavnia Curl. Now, here's John Hansen, and Let's Get Legal. 112 on WGN, a very happy Saturday afternoon. Uh, by the way, I just uh, was able to enjoy some of the Erie Cafe food that was brought in for Hockberg Show. Reading, did you have some too? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> EerieCafe.com. And uh, I had a little bit of everything. The ravioli was insane. Getting a big thumbs up from Meridian there, too. Uh, I think they had some steak. The chicken there as well. Just incredible stuff. I am absolutely checking out Erie Cafe for reservations 312-266-2300. This is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. And uh, we're going to chat about that rail strike in a moment. Hopefully get an answer to the question of the day. One of the most famous laws in U.S. history was only in effect for 12 years. It impacted millions. And the basics of it were written down on a napkin 250 miles from where I sit right now. Let's go to Dana. Dana's on WGN right now. Hey, happy Saturday, Dana. Hi, how are you? Um, Maybe the Brady Bill? The rifle bill? Brady Bill was uh, from 1993. It was a firearms bill named in honor of James Brady, who was the uh, press secretary under Reagan, who was shot in that assassination attempt. He died. He ended up living till 2014, and they. Uh, he's from Centralia, Illinois. So I see where you're thinking, Dana. It's just not the answer to the question of the day. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Thank you. It's a great guess. Let's go to Stuart. Stuart, you're on WGN. What's your guess? Hey, how you doing today? Great, great. Uh, my guess is I'm thinking it might have something to do with uh, the right to teach evolution, like with the Scopes Monkey Trial oh, and all that. Oh yeah, uh, that's a great guess too. It's it's not the answer though. I'm sorry. Oh, well, that's okay. Hey, you, I, I thought I had it, and then I lost it. Hey, that's, <laughs> you do know <laughs> that the, we broadcast the Scopes Monkey Trial. Yes, I know. I know. That's that's one of the reasons I was thinking about it. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, it's a legal thing. And yeah. yeah well, but, I like that. Oh, well. <laughs> I remember listening right, to well, the archives. Care. Yeah, you too, uh, Stuart. The Scopes right. Monkey Trial. Like in 1925, I want to say. And uh, I know John Williams, uh, one of the big anniversaries, did like a whole retrospective. I believe he went down to the courtroom, if I'm not mistaken. I remember listening to that many years ago. Let's go to Steve's on WGN. Hey, Steve, what's your guess? Steve, hello, hello. i got to press Steve's button one more time. There you go, Steve. Now you're on the air. What's your guess? I'm thinking of filibuster law. You know, it's still in effect, uh, the filibuster rules and regulations of the Senate. Uh, and it's been in effect for a while. It certainly does impact a lot of people and uh, messes with Senate laws. It's a great guess. It's just not the answer to the question of the day, uh, Steve. I'm sorry. Thanks. All right. We had a lot of guesses. No answers yet. 312-981-7200. Ooh, this is a good one. I uh, really like the answer, too, and I'll have a little history of that whenever we get that answer. And if you get the prize right, a WGN Radio 100th anniversary T-shirt. We'll take a break, then we'll break down the rail strike situation, maybe get a couple more guesses to the question of the day. Coming up on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Let's Get Legal here on WGN 118. I'm John Hansen. Oh, boy, we get a lot of callers asking if the, the answer to the question of the day was prohibition. Same thing happened last week, too. And it almost fits perfectly. It was in effect for about 12 years. It did directly impact millions of people. But the basics of it, at least for as far as I know, were not written down on a napkin 250 miles from where I sit. Though the temperance movement had a lot of roots in Illinois and the Midwest. So... Boy, that's as close of an answer you're going to get as a close of a wrong answer as you'll ever get. It's not prohibition. But if you have another guess, 312-981-7200. Professor Leroy from the University of Illinois. He's a little, uh, well, probably under 250 miles from where I am right now down in Urbana-Champaign. And we talk to Professor Leroy anytime big labor stuff is going on. And Professor Leroy, it doesn't get much bigger than a potential rail strike averted. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. John, good to join you. I hope I come up with the right answers for you. <laughs> well, don't take any guesses on the answer of the day. Guests are not allowed to uh, win. But I guess, first and foremost, is is this thing over? I mean, does the, the does Congress doing what it did over the weekend, uh, ratifying the bill and the president signing, does that end this situation for the time being? Yes, um, it's it's a done deal. Um, and uh, although many real employees are unhappy about it, uh, they will go back to work. I will just say the agreement that they that that's in place expires in sometime in 2024. 
So I'm, I'm not being facetious. They'll probably be back at the bargaining table uh, in a year uh, going forward. Okay, but it obviously averts what would have been a big deal. I know a lot of people are saying, "Oh, well, what you know? Let's let's fight harder for labor." What's it going to do? It gets a few presents delayed. No, we're talking about chemicals, uh, water purification systems. There's a lot. It would have been very serious, and in fact, that is why Congress ultimately has the the authority. This is rooted in American history. Congress stepping in in rail strikes, isn't it? It is, and Chicago plays a key role in it. Uh, Chicago was the hub of. Um, very important labor uh, strikes um, involving the rail industry, 1880s, 1890s, uh, and moving forward. Congress eventually said the nation can't put up with the interruption of services. And by the way, those strikes got violent. Um, they were There was a lot of pr- provocation on the employer side. The union side would get involved with it, too. Uh, so this is a very frustrating uh, process. It is slow. It is tedious. It puts speed bumps in the path of the negotiators who want to either lock out or strike. But the end game is Congress legislates a resolution. It is controversial, but um, it's been this way essentially since 1926. Are there any other industries where they have that similar power? None. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's something uh, that is a little bit like this. Um, I'm still looking at what the uh, the port authorities are doing out in uh, on the West Coast and the dock workers. And the last I checked, they still had not reached a settlement. Uh, there is a provision for an 80-day injunction, uh, but at the end of it, um, the employer can lock out, unions can strike. And I mention that because our ports are right up there with railroads in terms of their fundamental role in providing the rest of the economy with goods. Would you argue then that the fact that Congress is the ultimate arbiter or could be the ultimate arbiter, I guess you could say, for this for the rail uh, workers, that it really puts labor in a tough spot? Because at the end of the day, it's very doubtful Congress would allow uh, a strike to happen and that it kind of takes a little bite out of the argument that rail workers want to make. Yeah, uh, That's spot on. It, it does uh, significantly decrease the odds of a strike. And um, labor has grounds to complain about that. Absolutely. I would just say um, there's something called the Presidential um, Emergency Board, and they came up with this compromise resolution. This occurred in late summer. I think you and I talked about it regardless. What happened was this, um, this board basically split the difference between the employer's proposal and the union's proposal, and that formed the basis for the resolution that Congress came up with. And I just point that out because it's not Congress independently coming up with this grand solution. This is the product of a negotiation and, um, in effect, a a soft form of arbitration with the uh, Presidential Emergency Board back in the late summer. So uh, just to recap, this and we did talk about it then your memory is spot on and that's where the president and his board you know played a role in this so they kind of really shepherded the 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 bulk of what this plan ended up being this agreement that was then agreed to by i believe 8 out of the 12 unions representing these workers and that is basically the bill that was signed into effect yesterday was the deal that they had struck in the summer that's exactly right um and the only difference is in the house um what happened is um, uh, the Democrats put forward a bill to tack on as a separate bill seven paid days off. And that was really at the core of this sticking point here. Um, the Senate just didn't have the willpower to agree to that. Um, so, But again, what, what's happening here, I know that many people in the labor movement say, um, gosh, this is an imposition of Congress on us. The deal does reflect their bargaining. It reflects a a, a compromise, and, and we can't lose sight of that. So, right, that this is basically the agreement that had already been set forth. Uh, in fact, the Democrats were trying to go above and beyond, I guess you could say, for, for labor. And, and that was Congress's prerogative, right? I mean, in theory, Congress could have started with a fresh, from scratch, and built their own new agreement and passed it. Am I reading that correctly? Oh, you're reading it correctly. They they could operate from scratch. I mean, it, it would go nowhere politically. Uh, this is the safest route. It's been tried in the past. There's a there's a long historical precedent for exactly this kind of deal. You know, I would just say, uh, and I would point out, this deal um, uh, it was approved initially by several uh, large unions, 
And then a, a union called the IBB, um, they're the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, and they're not Purdue folks. Uh, they, um, they have about 300 members. They voted it down. And at that point, uh, it was almost a foregone conclusion. It's not going to settle at all. I mention it because there are over 100,000 rail workers who are covered under this agreement or this, it, technically it's a law that imposes an agreement, but it, it can only take 300 people to... Um, pardon the pun, derail the agreement, and then and then everybody else is caught up in it. Mm. But, I mean, that's the power of one for all, right? That's it. That's, that's correct. It is the power of one for all. And in that sense, um, you know, I, I know there's frustration on the labor side. Um, what happened was uh, a group of folks voted the contract down, and um, then it became an issue for other people to, to think about. Uh, but they did get to vote, and they'll, they'll say their vote was overridden. I understand that, sure. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask about the political realities of a lame duck Congress and wonder, would it be advantageous for labor? I don't know if this is even possible. Maybe it's designed to to work like this. I mean, imagine if this had come before Congress right before an election as opposed to after election. Would that change, perhaps, the way Congress looks at things and maybe give labor more power if they were able to put political pressure on a tougher vote uh, before an election? That is a great question and a great observation. Um, So the National Mediation Board is the federal agency that oversees the bargaining process. And they can call the time or the date when the parties are released to strike or lockout. And they... They chose December 9th as their date, and I am reasonably confident they looked at the calendar and said, let's choose a date that's um, a few weeks after the election, not a few weeks before the election, um, because, well, first of all, Congress isn't uh, in session during that time, so if a, if you're going to get a strike. But that speaks to your observation. Would, would labor feel better if, this, um, if they were released to strike before um, the election, absolutely. It would they they would view that as strengthening their hand. Um, and to that point, you know, if if the rail system shut down, I think folks from the labor side would say we would get an agreement in a short period of time. You know, the the railroads would come up with four or five more paid sick leave days for us, and we would settle. And uh, but on the other hand, a lot of other people would be damaged, including union workers who make steel and uh, autos and uh, in the trucking industry. So even though this is painful for the railroad workers, um, it is um, a, it allows for continuity of employment for other unionized workers. I had a question from the 708. How can the president force a union agreement that was rejected? Couldn't he force them instead back to the bargaining table? Was that an option? Yeah, they had exhausted that option. Uh, so there, there comes an end point in the Railway Labor Act. Uh, And it's a really good question, Um, but he played all of his cards. Um, And then he played the final card, which is to get behind uh, the idea of imposing a settlement through Congress. This idea had emerged. There were two Republican senators. uh, Wicker from Mississippi was one. Marshall from Kansas was another. They they had a straightforward uh, take the presidential emergency board. That speaks to your earlier question, what would happen before Congress? Um, It's essentially the same deal that occurred after, but Democrats would never sign on to that before an election. And now Democrats are facing the prospect of being punished at the polls in 2024 for doing this. Okay. Last question I have for you, Professor Leroy. I follow a lot of people uh, on Twitter that are impacted by this or who cover this, who say that, well, why don't the rail workers just strike anyways? What would happen if they just didn't show up? Sure. Um, that's a great question. Um, and if they didn't show up, um, we would have a chaotic uh, disruption of our economy is, is the first point. And um, I think it would potentially return us to a point where, uh, you know, management would try to staff the railroad if, if they could. But I think it would return us to where the nation was before 1926, um, which is um, a, a massively disruptive rail strike. Um, it would affect 
farmers who are shipping grain. It would affect consumers um, buying bread. Uh, it would affect manufacturing. It would affect um, people who are getting shipments uh, dropped off at their door. This law it inconveniences railway workers. I, I understand that it's a real pain for them. And, and it's, it's just a national policy that says um, you're in an industry that's too important to subject to this kind of massive disruption. Right. So they could just be fired if they don't show up at this point. Yeah, and that, that kind of reminds me of what happened with the PACO strike where uh, President Reagan fired 10,000 striking uh, air traffic controllers. Um, the thought the first day was that'll shut down the air system. It, it didn't. Um, I'm less optimistic that <laughs> you would get uh, some kind of, you know, 100,000 people to staff up for uh, railroads. That would seem to be a really tough climb, especially given how tight labor markets are. But again, you know, the, the, the person who's asking this question is right to say, uh, what gives the, you know, the, the government authority to impose this? I'll just add one more quick thing. Yep. I thought it was interesting that um, Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren were joined by Josh Hawley on this vote. To uh, this vote. They voted no. And they both, ex- they all three explicitly said, this is not fair to workers. I can't, I don't track this, but I would doubt that Hawley, Warren, and um, Sanders vote the same way frequently <laughs> right. in major legislation. And I think Hawley also voted for the, the extra sick days, and I believe Ted Cruz did as well, and I believe one or two other Republican yeah. senators, and I think they all have presidential ambitions. So uh, I'll leave that to another day. Professor Leroy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. All right, breaking it all down. Time for the news on WGN. Yeah, if you have any uh, questions about anything having to do with taxes, now is the time to call 312-981-7200. We'll chat with David Milanic from Katz Milanic in just a moment. But 312-981-7200, text call in right now. I'm going to try and get an answer to the question of the day really quickly. Again, this was a law that was in effect for only 12 years. It directly impacted millions of people. The basics of it written down in a napkin about 250 miles from where I sit right now. Let's go to Stephen. Stephen, you're on WGN. Hey, Stephen. Hello. What's your guess? Uh, Railway Act, Labor Act of 1926. That's definitely in the news, but it's still in effect, so not just 12 years. Thanks for the call, and now let's go to Steve. Hey, Steve, what's your guess? I would say the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Oh, like on the federal highways? Oh, that's a good guess. I don't know if that was a federal law. No, that must be a federal law if it's all the interstates. I imagine it's still in effect to today, although states have certainly changed some of them. It's a good guess, just not the answer. Sorry, Steve. Let's get David Milanic on the line right now, and you can call for anything, the question of the day or any tax questions, 312-981-7200. David, good to talk to you again, my friend. Hey, John. Always glad to be on. Yeah, and uh, I bring you on because you know, oh, just about everything about the tax code. You uh, you dive into it deep, and you love doing that, don't you? Oh, yeah. It, it, uh, any time we can uh, take those uh, breaks that go to the big boys and, and get them in the pockets of the little guy, that's what we're here for. Um, if, if, you're, uh, if you're in need of some tax help, give us a call, 708-914-8220. And I always ask you this, but i like you to share it. What percentage of people out there do you think leave money hanging? Like that they probably could have gotten more off their taxes, a bigger refund than they do? Oh, I, I think we said last time about 80%. It's, uh, there's a lot of people that leave money on the table because... Uh, Really, honestly, at the end of the day, it's because nobody really knows the tax law. It's not something they teach you. And while it's readily and openly available, there's 1,200 pages of the tax code. Who has time to read that other than me? I was going to say, you do. 708-914-8220 is how you read Katz Milanic, K-A-T-Z-M-I-L-A-N-E-C, com. Okay, questions starting to come in. 312, I always mispronounce this. It's Zell, right? How do? What are the new tax laws regarding Zelle payments? Any thoughts on that? Um, Zelle, uh, they're in all likelihood they're, if they're going to have to issue a form, it's likely going to be a 1099K, which is a uh, which is like a credit card processing type of uh, form. Uh, basically, if you took in more than uh, twenty thousand dollars, actually, no, they 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 recent. So I don't know what the standards are on this. They recently changed the standards on what ten ninety nine k's uh, the reporting requirements are, but they've revised it down. 
Okay. Um, so, so it's very possible if you use Zell uh, fairly frequently that you could get a 1099K from them, um, which would affect your tax filing. Right. Uh, you would then have to report that income on a Schedule C or potentially report it as other income, depending on the situation, how you're using Zell. I mean, technically, some of that stuff wouldn't be taxable. Like, for example, if you're just paying back and forth between friends, that shouldn't be taxable. But if but if you're issued a 1099-K, you're actually going to have to pay taxes on that money. Right. So figure out how to get out of it. Right, because if it's over $600, they're going to send you a 1099, right? Oh, it's 600 now. Okay. Well, I, yeah, that makes yeah, that's that, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, and you can look it up during the um, commercial break to 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 get the exact answer. Yeah, so. I, I I will uh, the the ten ninety nine because I know they revised it down. It used to be it used to be that uh, you didn't get one if you um, if you reported uh, unless you had twenty thousand of sales or two hundred or more transactions. I see. Yeah, I think it got anyone over six hundred. I think it's for PayPal as well and uh, any sort of those payments. Um, all right, so seven oh eight wants to know if I put my children on title on my income property that I live in and I pass away, will they have to pay capital gains taxes? Um so that's that's actually an interesting uh, tax planning question because effectively what you're trying to figure out is what's the best way to pass on that home to, to those kids. Um, if you put them on here, here's the thing. If you put them on title while you're still alive, uh, you're actually, unless you're, unless you're creating a sale document and you're actually going through a sales process where you're technically selling the home to them, uh, you're actually depriving them of a of a key tax break that they would be otherwise be entitled to, which is uh, which is a basis step up at the uh, date of death of the decedent. So when when someone owns property and they die and they and their their heirs are not on title and they have to uh, either through trust or through probate whatever go on title. Uh, there is a provision in the code that allows there to be a step up in basis to fair market value as of the date of death of the decedent. So, um, in a lot of cases, when somebody's when when somebody dies and they owned a home, they're going to sell the the heirs are typically going to sell that home. So it's really helpful for that because they because like if if you if someone dies in March and they sell the house in July. There's not going to be much difference in the fair market value between March and July. But if you so, were on it the whole uh, time, you're paying the capital gains on the difference you were on it the whole time. Well, because because the because the kids aren't entitled to the basis that you paid into it. Right. They they only get step up to fair market value at the date of death. Okay. So um, you could have paid seven hundred thousand for a house and it sells for a million, but if the fair market value was a million at the time you died, now there's no capital gains. That makes sense to me. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. You can talk to David at 708-914-8220. And especially for you folks texting in, you only get so many characters on a text. It's way better if you call in because David can ask you some follow-up questions as well. And if you don't want to call in on the radio, that's fine. You can call him directly at 708-914-8220. All right. 630 wants to know, is the money we got as homeowners from Susanna Mendoza, who's the Illinois comptroller, uh, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people got a little extra money, a couple hundred bucks. Is that need to be included as income, David? Um, so it's technically a tax refund. So the state can issue a 1099G, and if you had an itemized deduction, it is it is possible that you could end up paying income taxes the following year on that money. Um, now it's not necessarily, I mean, you have to, there's, there's a whole list of criteria you have to meet to get there. Like you have to have had a schedule a, you have to have had, uh, deductible state income taxes and all sorts of different stuff. And, and, and it had to have made a difference in the amount of your, uh, the amount of your, your, uh, your reef, your itemized deduction, not refund, itemized deduction. Uh, but if you if you meet all those criteria, then it can become taxable income on your following year taxes. Um, in all likelihood, most people are dealing with the standard deduction nowadays. Ever since they doubled it with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, 
So in all likelihood, you're probably not going to pay taxes on that. It's probably just money that you'll be able to get and and do whatever you want with. See, this is what I'm talking about, people. Most people would say, eh, no, you don't got to do it. But David knows the ways in which maybe you would have to do that. And that's what's great about David. You can call him at 708-914-8220. You call us at 312-981-7200. I got a couple great texts for you as well, David. And uh, callers are lighting up the phone lines right now. We're going to take a quick commercial break. More coming up on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. It's 149 on WGN. This is Let's Get Legal. I'm John Hansen, joined by David. Milanic, the president of Cats Milanic, all tax questions. Do you love when we throw them at you live, David? <laughs> and you yeah, have to, you have to go into great. your brain let's, and look let's, it up. Let's do it. All right, okay. Uh, let's. Oh, by the way, I did. I did uh, check that 1099k threshold. They did revise it down to six hundred dollars. Hey, I knew something. Uh, it's still two hundred transactions, but six hundred dollars. Oh, I see. Okay, so there is still a transaction number amount. Okay, let's go to Mike. Mike, you're calling on in. How you doing, Mike? Yeah, hi. Good afternoon, David. John, how are you both? Great. We're doing wonderful. Doing doing okay. wonderful, yep. Good, good. I have a question. It's about Zelle again. Uh, anyway, I lent my brother-in-law and the wife uh, $15,000. Fifteen? Uh, right now, they're paying me back to Zelle. They're selling money, you know, 2000 here, 2000 there, 2000 here, and that. Now... Will I be receiving some sort of uh, what's that? Ten ninety nine from uh, Zell, David. It's 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 very possible that you could receive a, a ten ninety nine k from Zell for the uh, for the processing of those transactions. Um, my advice would be have him like if there's any way he could switch to checks or cash or or any uh-huh. method that isn't going to be going through like an electronic system like that. I would yeah. I would have him switch to that because effectively uh, this is a loan and I, I mean there's probably a way we could we could get you out of it. We just have to like probably file a letter of explanation or a statement of explanation uh-huh. along with your uh, your tax return, just basically saying, hey, this was a loan. Uh, uh-huh. uh, Zell has a new uh, reporting requirement, but this this is not valid for. This is not valid for this situation because it's not actually taxable income, even though even though there were deposits to the account. It, it just kind of a you get you got to give an explanation of it. Um, but uh, with the loan, are you charging any interest to them, or is no, it just kind of like an no, interest-free no, loan no. you're just helping family it, it, out? It, it's just it's actually it's just actually to help them out, you know, to, right. to help them. Okay, to okay, start. that that's that's practically it. Now, what I'm wondering also is that does is Zell going to inform the IRS of this? Will 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 the IRS uh, be informed about about this transaction? So here's the thing: if you receive a document called the 1099K, uh, which mm-hmm. is a which is a payment processor uh, in, information tax statement, the IRS is receiving that document as well. So okay, uh, okay. around sometime around June or July. That document uh-huh. will show up on what's called your wage and income transcript. So if you file your tax okay. return and you get that document and you don't include that document, you're going to get a nasty uh-huh. no-no note from the IRS called a CP2000 notice that says you owe money because you didn't report the 1099K that they sent you. Hmm. Okay. So you can't okay. get around it. You you may think that you're you're in the clear, but you're not, and they'll find out and they'll let you do so, a letter. So you, 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 uh, sorry, one more question. You mentioned something then about 200 transactions, right? It's going to be a two, more than 200 transactions so that they'll send you the 1099 or they will send you the 1099 either way. I, I think it's an, an either-or scenario. Right. Either $600 or 200 transactions. Interesting. Hey, also, I want to say, uh, Mike, the person you loan money to, your brother-in-law, won't he get a, 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 a tax a bill too for that, David, or no? Um, well, how did you give him the money? Through Zell, right? Uh, oh, how, how am I receiving it? How did how you did give I it give to him? him? How did I give them? I, I just gave, I wrote them a check. Oh, a check. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't receive the same form. No. Okay. Okay. I was just making sure that if you Zell someone that much and they Zell you back, you're both going to get a 1099, uh, for that potentially. Well, at that point you okay. could kind of, you could kind of cancel each yeah, other out. I was going to say that you'll <laughs> be able to prove it. David, you bring up a great point yeah. and thanks for the call, Mike. We yeah. appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, yeah. bye-bye. And because, David, I know a lot of people that use the automated tax you know, p- companies to submit it. 
there's you can't like write an explanation for a lot of that stuff. That's why they need to talk to you. Oh yeah, absolutely. There, there's no way you cannot on free file or TurboTax or anything like that. You cannot write an ad, a letter of explanation. No. Or if you do uh, you may be able to on like a TurboTax, but it, but then they're going to say, okay, now we want two hundred fifty dollars from you. Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Uh, so I mean, like I said before on your show, TurboTax is a great way to stay out of jail. But if you have any sort of complex situation. You definitely need to talk to a tax professional. Give us a call, 708-914-8220. We can help, and we can get you out of those situations. Got a great text. we got about two minutes for this answer, David. Uh, this is from the 6 Rio. They said that they are now rent. They Their daughter is moving in with them after college. She works really close. She's going to save some money. They are going to charge her a little rent, and she likes that idea, too. She worries, is that income for me? But on the flip side, if I redo her room... And maybe add an ensuite bathroom. Is that tax deductible? Because now we're landlords. Ooh, what a question! Well, so uh, is that is that somebody who are are they renting uh, space in their home? Yes. Okay, so actually, this this creates a little bit of a unique scenario because not only is it income to them, but now they're also going to make be able to make their home into a much better tax deduction because we can move their 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 expenses that would normally go on Schedule A, we can instead move them over to Schedule E where more things are deductible. But depending on how much of the home is being rented, and I usually count common areas as 50% use, so if you're renting to someone and you're renting them a room, you're usually renting about 50% of the space because you have 50% common use and then uh, and then that one room that's 100% rental use. Um, so that actually gets around the passive activity loss rules of 25000 maximum loss. So you can actually have more than a $25,000 loss. Now, you want to make sure that you can prove that if you're going to do it. Right. Because if you get audited, you're going to have to prove it. But you can, you, once you are renting your own home, you can take things like utilities. If you have homeowner association dues, that's one of my favorites because people hate homeowner association dues. But they're completely tax deductible if you do it right. Interesting. Um, so I know a lot uh, of people out there that don't want to charge their kids uh, rental because of the income. But yes, you might get a little extra income and have to pay a tax on it. But it opens up potential opportunities for you. Absolutely. I can. I can. Uh, other things I can deduct: uh, homeowners insurance, uh, property taxes, mortgage interest. Um, if you have a lawn service, we can put that on there as well. Yes, you're going to have a little bit of income to report, but you're going to have so much of expenses against that income that it's going to become a loss and it's going to become a tax benefit for you and your family. Interesting stuff there. Yeah, that's a great. 630 needs to call David on Monday morning, 708-914-8220, K-A-T-Z-M-I-L-A-N-E-C.com. David, it's always good to chat with you. Thanks for uh, helping out our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Always a pleasure, John. And just make sure it's not Monday afternoon because I have a pretty important appointment then. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. Going to be visiting myself. Let's take a break. Then we're going to have the news next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom on WGN. Today's show is sponsored by Leonard Trial Lawyers, Heggie Walkner Law, and Kavnia Curl. Now, here's John Hanson, and let's get legal. 720 WGN. I'm uh, John Hanson. This is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Joined by Mike Leonard. Don't worry, we'll get you your headphones settled uh, during the commercial break, Mike. How you doing, my friend? Good, John. Great to be here. Yeah, you're all dressed up. Yeah, you you told me I had to wear a suit and tie. If I wanted to be in studio and not on my cell phone, you insisted I, I must insisted. have a tie on. Yeah. <laughs> and I show up in this hoodie, yeah. <laughs> and you're wearing the sweatshirt. No, I actually was having to be pretend to be a judge today for, for half the day. At Northwestern Law School, they have a trial practice program, which I've been an instructor in for like last 10 years or so. So the culmination of the semester is a mock trial, which they all do at, in early December, kind of brings together all the skills they've learned during the semester. My group is actually the international law students. So they're Ooh. here for like a year program at Northwestern Law, taking a variety of classes, one of which is trial practice. So imagine going to another country where you don't necessarily speak the language Speaking a language and then learning all the legal jargon and trying a case. You know, not, none of us American lawyers could do that. So right. it was really, a, it was four people doing it, you know, te- two teams of two, and they were really phenomenal. It was That's great. awesome. Yeah. And uh, was it fun playing the judge? It was. I mean, I just tried, especially since they're new and they're students and new to trial practice, I try to be as nice as possible and as complimentary as possible. Some people are really 
harsh on the students. They'll be like, you know, not really recognizing that, you know, these people have not been trying cases here and are law students or international law students. So I try to be as, as respectful and, and upbeat as possible in terms of emphasizing all the positive things that they do. Well, we want confident lawyers out there, right? And sometimes I think that people are of the old school mind where it's like, I'm going to really put them through the ringer so they know what it's like in the real world. That's okay once you've been through the ringer a few times. You know, if, if, they, if they've tried 10 mock cases and they're on their 11th, then you can be a little tougher on them. But yeah, I was super impressed because how, how good they were. And uh, they're all actually admitted lawyers in China who were here for a one-year program. So theoretically, they could be practicing. So they're lawyers already in yeah, China. But, okay. but very young. I, I would say I didn't, I didn't ask for ages, John, because you know, we're not supposed to do that. But I would say they all seem to be about 30-ish. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And then they're here. Are they hoping to then practice in the States, or are they just learning for a year, absorbing what we do here, and taking it back home? I think it goes both ways. I think some end up staying here, getting jobs with firms or corporations in the U.S. I know one of the students last year is working for a corporation in New York. Uh, but I think a lot of them go back and practice there. But, you know, the international exposure and experience, I think, is impressive to law firms if they want to work in another country. Yeah, that's really cool so the, stuff. the power has gone to my head, John. I'm going to be absolutely <laughs> unbearable today with you. Yeah. Why should today be any different? Are <laughs> uh, we going to start with the listener questions I've been getting about you all week, John? Yeah, what do you got? So you've been getting questions about me. About you, yeah. You know, do you, do you tell people I'm your publicist? Because, you know, no one asks a question about me. It's all, it what, all about is, me. What, what do they want to know about John Hanson? And? So this week's questions are, John, are very mm-hmm. important. Oh, you've got it written out. Oh, yeah. We're into the holiday season. So people want to know, first, are you a fake tree or a real tree guy? Real tree. Okay. How um, For your whole life? No, we grew up as an artificial tree home. When I started making the Christmas tree decisions myself, I went to real because, and this is totally me, it's cheaper to do it artificial in the moment so I did it then, even though I know I could invest in a great artificial tree. Well, it's more expensive. It would be cheaper over time. But I love the smell. It gets me in the spirit. And I curse myself every year because putting the lights on it is the worst. But yeah. always real. I love the smell. And I, I hate, I'm lazy. I hate putting together a fake tree. I hate that because I'm just very oh, lazy. Yeah, so yeah. it's much easier to drag the other tree into the house. Okay. Second question, John, right. which everyone's been asking yeah. about you all week, yeah. is are you you know more of a Christmas Eve guy or more of a Christmas Day guy? Christmas Eve, 100%. Okay. The anticipation, I think that you feel as a kid for Christmas Eve still carries on. And Christmas Eve in my home was always, whether it was at my grandparents' house when we were very young or eventually my parents who took it over, it was an hors d'oeuvres meal. There's not ah, a sit down. It's yeah. all grays around the house and there's, you know, pigs in a blanket, all sorts of cheeses, Hawaiian bread with uh, with a great little uh, sauce, shrimp dip. And so there's never a sit down meal. So you have a little plate. Yeah. You talk to this person, you walk over here, talk to this uncle, this aunt, and you can get out of those conversations quickly if you need to. <laughs> Very similar to our house. We grew up as a Christmas Eve family, too, yeah. but only our nuclear family, just us. And we would have just the small stuff, like you said, like, you know, sandwiches and yeah. some shrimp and stuff like that. The big day was always for eating was always Christmas. And the funny thing was always, John, and this goes to your ability to draw reasonable inferences and, and consider circumstantial evidence since you now have been talking to lawyers for so long. For but sure. every year on Christmas Eve, my older brother would always get in trouble and then he'd be sent upstairs and then we'd take a car ride and we'd come back and Santa had come. Uh-huh. And um, can you draw any conclusions from that? Oh, uh, you, no, might have, no. you might have young listeners, so don't. Right, but, no. But you get what was going on there, John? I, I do and I don't. Uh, of course, Santa came right on time is exactly what yeah, happened. And it was, and that was funny that my brother would always get in trouble and not be able to go on the car oh, ride. Oh, yeah. And Santa would come while we were gone. Well, brothers, you know, that's how brothers are sometimes. Yeah, the older exactly. Brother. Exactly. Mm. All right. Well, uh, that was a fun little segment of what <laughs> of into John Hansen's life. Dave is on the line. We're going to get to him. He's got a great question. We'll do that after this on WGN. Michael Leonard. Oh, excuse me. Mike Leonard. I called you Mike, Michael, for so long. You can call me whatever you're, John. When I'm on your show, you're definitely the boss. So whatever you want to say, Mike or Michael. LeonardTrialLawyers.com is where you go to reach him. And uh, just an incredible federal defense attorney, if I might say so myself. Uh, You like the fight. I do, John. I'm not going to stop you from saying good things like that. (laughs) It's the only time I will not disagree with you today. Yeah, exactly. Let's get Dave on the line, so put those headphones on. Uh, Dave, you got a question for Mike Leonard. Yeah, hi, guys. Um, Yeah, recently I served in the civil court at the Daily Center, Mm -hmm. and I was was frankly surprised and kind of put off by the judge on the case. He had uh, almost like a militaristic nature to him, and we were constantly reminded it was his courtroom and 
questions were kind of immediately shot down as irrelevant. And I, I guess so. My question is: Is Cook County are Cook County judges kind of known for this, or I mean, does it happen all over the country, or did I just get a jerk to serve with? Oh, that's interesting. Well, uh, it's, what do you think? It's Mike? a great question, Dave, and, and things vary so much. Uh, but first of all, we have to ask all Cook County judges who are listening to turn the radios off, and then. <laughs> And then I'll answer your question. But okay. but no, I guess a couple questions for you. So you got the usual mail notice to come down. Is that what happened? I'm sorry. Yes, it was a, it was a, um, yeah, the, the notice to come down and, and uh, I went through the selection process. Okay. And, so, so you uh, weren't, you weren't, you weren't being tried on a case. <laughs> no, no. <that's, laughs> okay. No, it was a, it was an, it was just a civil accident case. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so did you get, Dave, a, did you get to the point where level. did you have to fill out a jury questionnaire before you came in or no? Uh, yeah, I believe I did. Like a couple questions at the, at the booth before I sat down. Okay. This was just in the, to be clear, this was just in the selection process. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so you like got there to, were 30, there were 35 of us out there and, uh, they were trying to get it down to 12 and I just, I mean, maybe, maybe he had to move it along fast, but I, I thought, you know, some people had some relevant questions and he was, he was. Uh, getting ticked off at people. I didn't. I didn't think anything was out of line. Wow. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But I have one more question for you. So you got to the part which is called voir dire, where the attorneys for both sides were ac- actually asking, posing questions to the jurors. Or yes. Okay. So yes, because sometimes I did get there and, and they were they were great. I thought the jur- the um, the attorneys on either side were great and respectful, and uh, but it was the judge that was kind of. Got. I was. I was just kind of put off by him. Dictatorial. Dictatorial. Yeah. And what were Dave? What were the questions that <laughs> that prospective jurors were asking that drew the court's okay, ire? So I what, feel like Mike so Leonard's what? being a little dictatorial here uh, on this program. <laughs> I'm not allowed to ask yeah, the listeners questions, trial? John. Am Come I on. on <laughs> yeah, all right. Go ahead. Dave. You are now, Dave. <laughs> uh, no. No. But the. Uh, you know one one guy asked, um, "Are we?" going to be expected to be here past six o'clock you know just that's a fair a, question that's yeah. a question i had as well and uh the judge uh said i'll tell you i'll tell you when we're when we're done we're Whoa. gonna do our work and yeah that's pretty so he, interesting i i was kind of pissed at that because i i i had the same question right you got families you got things to do yeah and you were it's yeah. not like you weren't willing to serve during the work hours because that's what it is you no, know that's, that's right yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, right. we were there at we were there at uh, nine a.m. for our thirty-five bucks. Yeah. So, Dave, it's a great question because the interesting thing you would think that since we have a civil jury trial system and a criminal jury trial system, you'd think that it would be very uniform, meaning that in each courtroom you'd expect that the judge would ask the same types of questions, he would have the same type of procedures, and you know the jurors would be informed as the same things. I'd say. Remarkably, it's completely the opposite. Mm-hmm. Every single judge in every single building does jury selection differently. And so it's it's quite amazing, and it differs by jurisdiction. And some of them are really, you know, dictatorial, as your term is, uh, in different courtrooms here in Illinois, and certainly in other states as too, I've, I've experienced. But, you know, there's some judges that take the approach where you, when you come in, they're the exact opposite of what you're describing, where they're basically telling you uh, how great it is that you came in, what an important part of the system that you are. They tell you that you'll probably find that you're going to, after the experience, say that you enjoyed the experience, that they hear that so much, and that, you know, it's an important constitutional principle. And most judges, Dave, I find, and, you know, we'll talk about the other dictatorial ones, but I find most of them are usually like, hey, here's how it's usually going to work. We expect a trial to last X amount of trial days because it's important because when Mm -hmm. people are getting questioned by the lawyers, the lawyers want to know, are they really going to be eligible to serve for that period of time? Because as you know, probably Dave, from your experience, people are going to raise their hand and say, hey, I got a flight to Detroit on Tuesday. I got a vacation that's already booked for the Bahamas on Thursday. And the lawyers want to know that because those people are going to get excused for cause. So those are normal questions. So most judges at the outset will say, hey, look. Here's our, our typical day starts at nine, nine thirty. You know, I might have a brief status call with other cases, you know, from such time to such time. We'll take a fifteen minute break at ten thirty. We'll take a lunch out. break at twelve fifteen. Yeah. Right, and yeah. and then, and they'll tell you your end day of Dave end day. But 
Yeah, it's very. He did, to be fair, to be fair, he did do that. He told us uh, it would be no longer than a five day trial. Oh, okay, but uh, you know so I, that I, he did right. Which and that's nice you to give him that though, Dave. And we appreciate the call. I just I feel like that you know Dave obviously came on the radio here to say it wasn't a good experience. He probably Dave. I'm sure you've told your friends and family that's probably the last thing we want going around, right? Judges, I imagine, want to be more accommodating to jurors because so many people aren't showing up for jurors service. They find every reason not to. We need to welcome in a positive way as many people as we can to our courtroom to the process, right? Yeah, sadly, I mean, right. there are, of course, instances where judges are dictatorial and they're, it's my courtroom, it's my rules, you're not going to talk. If you talk, you're going to be removed. If I find a cell phone on you, you're going to be held in contempt. I just don't think that approach generally works very well. It makes people angry. It makes people not want to be part of the process. I think it makes it more likely that people try to come up with excuses to get out of being selected. So uh, I'm sad to hear you had such a bad experience, Dave. It's certainly not uniform like that, but I would say, unfortunately, that's not unheard of in our system here and in other places. Thanks, Dave. I would agree. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that experience. Do you ever see a, uh, a judge name come up on whatever sheet of paper you get, finding out who you're going to be in front of and go, oh, no? <laughs> well, here's how that works. So when you when a new case is filed, let's say you file a lawsuit on behalf of your client, or let's say in a criminal case, you find out who your case is assigned to, then you know who your judge is, right? Mm-hmm. So of course, I mean, we're, we're all humans, and we've had experiences with some of those judges, and some we think are uh, have might have a tilt this way or that way. So if I'm representing a criminal defendant, I might think someone who's going to be a little bit more favorable or more ability to listen to what the defendant and defense counsel have to say. So, sure, we certainly have those reactions. I think, that, uh, John, we talked about the one where you really have that pit in your stomach is when you do a, a appellate argument before the federal appellate court in Chicago. Well, there's a draw. You, you don't get to find out who those three are until 8.30 that a.m., and in the past, historically, there were a couple, uh, and I think it's changed dramatically, that you would see that, and you're like, oh, my God. Right. And you're, you were worried. And if you didn't see them, you felt fantastic. Like, oh, I can do this. Because it's out of, what, 11 they picked three? Is that the number? I'm yeah, going? I don't know how Whoever's many sitting city. at the time, yeah. yeah. Well, they, they know. They've been on the case from the get-go, but you don't know until you show up for mm. oral argument. When the oral argument takes place, then you find out who's going to be the panel of three that you have to argue before. Interesting. All right, we're going to get John on the line. Hey, John, you're on WGN. Good afternoon. Hey, John, how are you? Oh, uh, great. Thanks for taking my call. And what's, your, uh, what's your question here for Mr. Mike Leonard? Yeah, hi, uh, Mr. Leonard. I have a question. Um, I like to watch a lot of TV, Law & Order, CSI, and you'll see those uh, stories where or, or, or plots where some person walks in and they, com- they admit to a crime to the police that they've never committed. and Or you find out at the end of the show they didn't, but they did it for attention. I cannot imagine a real-life situation where somebody would put themselves at that kind of risk, even if they're mentally ill, where that would occur. And I'm just curious, from your experience, uh, whether or not you've ever seen anything like that. And if you have, what reasons did you end up finding out? Is it like what you see on TV, or is it something that is completely different or much more, let's say, mundane than something dramatic? On TV? So you're asking That's about, like, question. false confessions or confessions that were... Exactly. That like, are... false, exactly. False confessions, like... I drive a bread truck. I all of a sudden I'm admitting to a series of murders. Right. But, you know, I'm a bore, I'm a guy who doesn't have a lot of friends, but I want the attention that comes with the with with the infamy of being announced. Yeah, I don't know about it. I mean, I haven't heard of any uh, infamy case. I'm sure you exist, but false confessions, we've learned a lot more about that in the past couple of years, haven't oh, yeah. we? John, it's a, first of all, it's a great question. But yeah, false confessions happen on a regular basis in our, in our system. And probably only in the last 10 to 20 years where there's been a focus on innocence projects and things like that and uh, the development of DNA and other more sophisticated techniques where you go back and you look at a case and you can prove that the confession that was extracted had to be false because here's all the other evidence and it shows it couldn't have been this person. But certainly in our system, it happens on a regular basis. The situation that you have just described where the person's doing it for attention, I think that's extremely rare. But the false confessions for other reasons happens on a regular basis. And there's but a lot written about this in law journals and psychiatry journals, etc. There's witnesses who are experts who testify on the subject to trial. But the more typical thing is the individual is might be young. They might not be well educated. They're in custody for an extended period of time, could be 
hours, could be days. They're given promises. Yeah, they're told things that are false. Yeah. For instance, hey, your your co-defendee here has told us it's you. We know it's you. Or we have this fingerprint, and we know that it's you. And many of those things are legal practices, by the way. But, well, some are, some aren't. Yeah. Tell you what, we're just getting started. John, I appreciate the phone call. I want to dive a little bit more into false confessions. All right, sure. With Mike Leonard here from Leonard Trial Lawyers. We'll do that after we get a look at the news here on WGN. Mike Leonard here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. That's Mike. I'm John Hansen. And uh, if you want Mike's services or want to reach out to him, leonardtriallawyers.com. Who do you help out, Mike? John, we regularly represent individuals in federal criminal cases and in state criminal cases. And then on the civil side, as trial lawyers, we often represent individuals who are suing companies as whistleblowers or employee discrimination, things of that nature. From the whistleblower employment discrimination point, what point do you recommend them calling you before they've blown the whistle or afterwards? Well, a lot of times we, we talk to people who have who are thinking about blowing the whistle. I mean, first of all, it's difficult sometimes because we're talking about various levels of blowing the whistle. Right. You know, there's a big difference between uh, perhaps reporting an isolated incident of harassment or discrimination versus, you know, thinking about reporting the company for a multi-million dollar Medicare fraud scheme or something like that, where they know not only is going to rock their own world, but it may, you know, have enormous repercussions or bring the company down. So a lot of times we're talking about people as they're making that decision. And then oftentimes, unfortunately, it's when they've blown the whistle and they're retaliated against and or fired, which we where we get the call. So, you know, either situation comes up a lot. LeonardTrialLawyers.com. You got a phone number you want people to call? 312-380-6559, John. All right. Say it one more time because it's radio and I want to write it down. Oh, yeah. I feel like uh, better call Saul, though, whenever I do this. <laughs> 312-380-6559. Okay. Can All I right, change we're... that to better call Mike somehow? Is there digits <laughs> yeah. that would correspond? I'm sure. We'll look at that URL already and see if we can get bettercallmike.com. All right. Yeah, there we go. Um, we were talking about false confessions before the news, and I feel like sometimes, you know, like our caller uh, suggested, John, you know, it's almost mind-boggling to think that someone would confess to something that they didn't do, which is why I think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it. Unless you've sat and watched one of these situations, a 14-hour videotape of this playing out, I imagine you've watched some of those and been in cases with some of those. Oh, yeah. We've we've definitely had false confession cases. Yeah, because... I think, number one, we're, yeah, we're all sort of mystified. Like, why would someone admit something that they didn't do? I would never do that, right? And then secondly, they see these things on TV where it's a five-minute segment where one agent's a good guy, one's a bad guy, and they admit within a couple of minutes because it's a TV show. they got to wrap it up in a half hour. Mm-hmm. But you make a great point because what happens and what is just fascinating, and I, you, you bring up a perfect example. I had a client in the last couple of years where there was a video for, it was about 12 to 14 hours of interrogation, right? Mm -hmm. Small room, very small room, no windows, no phone, three agents, uh, just coming at him, coming at him. You're lying. You're lying. We know you're lying to us. We know that's not how to happen. We know you were there. We know you did this. And, you know, typically if you look at the factors that go into it, it's the age of the, the person who confesses, um, their mental status, you know, their sophistication, uh, a lot of times their resources, their inability to have the savvy or wherewithal to ask for counsel, mm-hmm. right? And not even knowing that they can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes mental health issues or physical health issues. And then, of course, as we hey, just t- talked about before the break, tactics that are allowed and legal in many places, for instance, lying to the individual and telling them that, hey, the person that was with you has already confessed. They've already told us you did this, this, and that, which can be a complete and total lie. Also, we have your fingerprint or we have this evidence that so we know you were there. We know you did it. And uh, you bring up a great point because, you know, when I was brought into that case, you know, it's a 12, 14 hour video. You sit down and you think, wow, this is going to be, this is going to be a long one to sit here and watch. And it develops over time, mm-hmm. you know, where at the beginning, the first two, three, four, six, eight hours, the suspect or alleged suspect is denying it repeatedly, you know, no matter what they say. And then they'll take breaks. They'll come back at him again. They'll do nice guy. They'll do bad guy. They'll do whatever. They'll do tag team. And then eventually you can watch literally in the video where it starts to turn and where the individual starts to go along with them. And, you know, they're given promises about, you know, they can go home. That's what I was going to say. We've already got you, but you can get a reduced sentence or no sentence. You know, we'll recommend to the prosecutors this or that. So it happens remarkably more often than you would think. 
And there's also all those factors that we talked about that are kind of the the foundation, the bedrock for a lot of the circumstances that lead to those. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I think that even if they are, you know, we know you did it, even if there's false evidence, I I still think a lot of people would still stand up and say, no, you must be lying to know that, but it's the promises. Sure. And it's, and it's easy for you to say that, you know, you're a, true. I mean, can we say late 30 guy, John? Yeah, are, you say early late 40, 30s. are you early 40s? Yeah. No, late okay. 30s. Okay. Yeah. Late 30s guy. Hanging on. With, with edu- you're educated, you're highly sophisticated, you understand legal process. Okay. It's very different than you're an right. 18 year old who's never had an encounter with law enforcement, who, you know, maybe he's had a lot of bad experience with law enforcement and fits into a lot of the other criteria we just talked about. Yeah. And I know that some of those tactics are important for police to have in their in their toolbox, right? Sure. But, you know, there's been a lot of reforms in Illinois and nationally because this is sort of a realized it's an epidemic of false confessions. And that's led to a lot of the exoneration cases where people have been on death row and got off death row or you've had this well-publicized cases. There was a podcast about a detective in Brooklyn who led this unit in the 70s where they would, in quotation marks, get confessions from dozens of people and you know it turned out years later wow it's interesting because they're always manufactured they're always fake and they're always supported by the same witnesses so it's just been a problem in our system for so long and there are being steps taken to on a reform level to deal with it right and i mean and we're talking right now about the video confessions we have evidence of yeah and it's not like chicago is any stranger to confessions quite literally beaten out of people uh, in our city. Oh, well, as we know in the old days, that happens yes. on a regular basis, right, unfortunately. Right. But now uh, now there are certain requirements about what has to be videotaped, what has to be audio taped, that it has to be uninterrupted, you know, some of the tactics that can be used. So we're, we're certainly turning the corner, but still, it happens on, on a regular basis. And uh, yeah, and you talk about like what is legal or not legal. That is a state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction situation. Well, there's not it, many federal guidelines about this. No, there, there's you know what's been instituted are things that are like guidelines that these are best practices or these are practices a particular police department is going to have to follow. There's also national standards. So if you're filing a motion to suppress, so let's say you have a client, you're brought in to represent them after they've already so called confessed. You're going to have a motion to suppress, which you're going to have an evidentiary hearing where you're going to have a put on evidence, put on the agents, put on the tape, put on your client about what happened in an attempt to quash the statement. So there, there's those safeguards in the system itself. But also, John, let's not forget one of the big one of the safeguards as well is is the statement corroborated. So. Mm-hmm. You know, you can extract a statement from somebody or, or say that you did, but it doesn't mean you have a winnable case from a, from a prosecutorial standpoint because there has to be some support to the the confession. You know, if, if the person, you know, can prove they physically weren't there, the evidence doesn't match, right. the story doesn't match the facts, you know, there, there's a lot of things that are going to happen during the course of the case. But do you think that there's a lot of jurors that once they see that confession tape played... The part that they want to show you, the part where they confess, the letter, whatever it is, that there are jurors that even without corroborating evidence, they just can't get over the confession. It carries so much weight. Absolutely. hundred percent true. And that and that's the problem, because by the time the court has decided whether the, it's admissible or not, if it comes in, it comes in. So you're not you're not going to get to be able that to tell the jury that it should be uh, excluded. It's already in. But you can still argue about whether it's credible whether it's corroborated by other evidence, whether it makes sense, you know. So you still have those arguments available to you, but you, just like the listener, John, who called before Mm -hmm. and various others, they're sitting there listening to us saying, I would never admit to something that I didn't do, no matter what you did to me. Right, and also there's a situation when there's multiple defendants for a crime, often the one that confesses and tells the first story is rewarded, even if it's a lie. Of course, and, you know, even apart from the confession standpoint, just think about a regular run-of-the-mill, so to speak, federal criminal case. And it's true that people that come to the table and what's called proffer, meaning meet with the prosecutors, provide information, they're often the ones who are going to get the best deal. They're first to the table. They're going to testify against their co-defendants. They may get up to a third off or more. They may not even be charged. And, of course, that's very valuable to them, and it provides a, a clear motivation to testify falsely against others. 
We got an interesting text from the 847. I'm not going to list the town name that they're listing in the text. I just want to do a little bit more research before I disparage an entire uh, suburban police department. I'm well, sure that's trying John, to do I'll, I'll represent you in a defamation case. So <laughs> yeah, on, a, on an hourly basis, though. But I'm going to read through this text, 847, and I will uh, ask the question to Mike Leonard in a delicate way after this break here on 720 WGN. The person wanted to know is why is there not more discipline against the officers who got that false confession? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's hard to talk about the particular, you know, city without knowing a lot more of the facts and, right. and the history, right? 100%. But also, you know, police are generally unionized everywhere. So to get fired, there's a, certainly a very detailed process to go through where you grieve and arbitrate and all that sort of stuff. So cops do get fired from time to time from this. I'd agree with you. It doesn't certainly seem like it's on a regular basis. I agree. But, but one of the other chief remedies that people have are civil lawsuits against the officers. So, and we sometimes represent individuals in those cases. They're called civil rights cases. So you might be filing that in state court. You might be filing it in federal court, alleging that your civil rights were violated either for a variety of reasons. Number one, you were detained without probable right. cause. That evidence was manufactured against you. There's a you asked for a lawyer, you didn't yeah. get one. I there, mean, there's there, there's a whole variety of circumstances that lead to these civil lawsuits. And in Chicago, John, you probably are aware, in federal court in Chicago, over the last five years in particular, I mean, there's been bell ringer verdicts against the city of Chicago, against individual officers. So that's one of the primary tools. Because I agree with you, it's it's hard to get people dismissed. And the citizen obviously has really little say in that. Well, hold on. I, I do want to push back. Not push back. One thing, though. If there's police officers that are doing their job and they're trying to solve crimes and they are within their right doing what they were you know, told are OK tactics to use legally and has been taught to them and they get a confession, they, they checkmark that as job well done. I mean, that is still presented to the prosecutor then, who then has to be the one to ultimately decide whether to charge, correct? Oh, sure. But yeah, but we're not, I don't think we're talking about that situation. You're talking so about actual talking about, law breaking. Yeah, if you, if you uh, did something that's illegal to, to extract the right. confession, or you lied, or, or whatever you did, then that, that's a whole different ballgame versus simply doing your job. Right. And then someone making a prosecutorial decision I, I guess based I'm, upon that. There's, gonna, there's all sorts of circumstances. Right. When I, and I don't know this particular text or circumstances of every situation, but there are conceivably situations where it turns out to be a false confession, but the police did everything that they were legally allowed to do. I don't know how you hold police responsible for that when they did when they followed the rules doing what they were doing. Oh well, yeah, and 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 they're that happens. and they're not. That happens all the time too. So there's many many cases where it could it could turn out that the fa- the confession was false. However, they followed the guidelines, the protocols. It was a legally extracted confession. They didn't do anything wrong, and they're not liable, and they're okay. not going to lose their job. So that happens on a, on a daily basis. I just wanted to make that distinction yeah, there. Yeah. Okay, uh, I want to talk about the bail project. Something I didn't know about till you told me, and you didn't know about till recently. Yeah, I was kind of excited. I, w- I was I was looking at this bail issue because I thought you might bring up the efforts in the Illinois legislature to tinker with the Safety Act, which is supposed to take effect in January. Mm-hmm. And in doing that research, you know, working for you, John, is what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I found this organization called The Bail Project, which uh, unfortunately and sadly I didn't know existed until uh, yesterday. But it has, you know, uh, branches in 20 states. What they do is they raise money from individuals and foundations and organizations it's a nonprofit. yeah they're a nonprofit, they're a charitable organization and they raise money and they use the money to go towards bond for bail for people right and under so, certain circumstances yeah, if they if the person fits the criteria of the organization is in the right jurisdiction they might provide the bond the bail money right and so the defendant's not putting anything up the organization is which is uh fantastic in a lot of cases and therefore if the defendant complies with all their conditions and the case is over that money Goes right back, back. Goes right back to the organization to be able to use for another defendant. So I thought that was fascinating, and I'm surprised I didn't haven't heard of it. But what happened was, and why why it kind of came to my attention is, in the state of Indiana, they have a chapter there or or an office, whatever you want to call it. And so the state of Indiana passed a specific law with which is directed at the category of charitable bail organizations, clearly targeting them, and saying that for certain types of crimes, they're not allowed to provide bail money to people, which, of course, they're up in arms about. And the reason why it came to my attention is it's a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals case here in Chicago, which I apparently is going to be argued pretty soon. So when the decision comes down on that, I think we should talk about it. Yeah, that'll be interesting, because in my mind, just my non-legal mind, 
what does it matter where the money came from? If, if relatives can give you money to get out of bonds, why can't a charitable organization provided by thinkers and people that are passionate about this give exactly. you money? To me, it makes no sense. The, the public argument that the authorities have made in Indiana is that this organization doesn't have bail bondsmen that go out and hunt people down if they don't appear for court, okay? But to me, that's the big so what. They, the bail organization, the bail project says that statistically – they actually have a much better success of their people showing up for court. Because they remind them of it. Even, yeah, they remind them of it. They provide services, even though someone else is fronting the money. Yeah, so wait, that's right, because you could just go to a bail bondsman. Yeah. And if that's legal, then certainly a charity organization. Yeah, it, it seems like it's, number one, economic-driven, maybe by interests in that state who don't want this organization taking business away from them. And number huh. two, it's targeting this charitable organization who's doing something, in my mind, is very good, as we've talked about before. The problem with bail is in inequity. You know, one person can be charged with the same offense as another, and there could be the same evidence against them. One has financial means, one doesn't. One sits in jail for three years till their case goes to trial. One's out doing their job, taking care of their family. So there's a huge inequity in the, in the bail system. Fascinating stuff. Mike Leonard, every time you come on, it's never enough time. Um, we had a, a Dick Caller wanted to ask, they didn't want to go on air. Have you ever represented a police officer, by the way? I have, yeah. Okay. So I've had some interesting cases where we, we talked about the civil rights cases. So I've had uh, two or three cases where I actually was called upon to represent the officers, CPD officers who are getting sued in federal court. And I represented them against the, the allegations okay. that they had violated people's rights. And I've also had the pleasure of representing the former president of the FOP of Chicago, Against the FOP. So that was a lot of fun, too. That went went to trial as well. All right. Mike Leonard, we're out of time. We'll do it again soon, though, okay? John, great to see you. And have more questions for me next time, you promise? I will. Thanks. (laughs) Mike Leonard, Leonard, triallawyers.com. That's going to do it for us today. We didn't get an answer to the question of the day, which means it rolls on over to next week. We're on at 1 o'clock, a quick show next week, just till 1.30. A really quick half hour. We'll do it then on WGN. News next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom.